Chapter 16 of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. His plan, grown to full stature so swiftly and springing out of nothing, well nigh, had come out of his first determination to bring Jack Landis back to Lou Macon, for he could interpret those blank, misty eyes with which she had sat after the departure of Landis in only one way. Yet to rule even the hand of Big Jack Landis would be hard enough, and to rule his heart was quite another story. Remembering Nellie Lebron, he saw clearly that the only way in which he could be brought back to Lou was first to remove Nellie as a possibility in his eye. But how remove Nellie as long as it was her cue from her father to play Landis for his money? How remove her, unless it were possible to sweep Nellie off her feet with another man. She might, indeed, be taken by storm, and if she once slighted Landis for the sake of another, his boyish pride would probably do the rest, and his next step would be to return to Lou Macon. All this seemed logical, but where to find the man to storm the heart of Nellie and dazzle her bright, clever eyes? His own rags had made him shrug his shoulders, and it was the thought of clothes which had made him fasten his attention so closely on the man of the linen suit in Lebron's. Donnegan, with money, with well-fitted clothes, and with a few notorious escapades behind him, yes, Donnegan, with such a flying start, might flutter the heart of Nellie Lebron for a moment. But he must have the money, the clothes, and then he must deliberately set out to startle the corner, make himself a public figure, talked of, pointed at, known, feared, respected, and even loved by at least a few. He must accomplish all these things beginning at literal zero. It was the impossible nature of this that tempted Donnegan, but the paradoxical picture of the ragged skulker and Milligans actually sitting at the same table with Nellie Lebron and receiving her smiles stayed with him. He intended to rise, literally phoenix-like, out of the ashes, and the next morning, in the red time of dawn, he sat drinking the coffee which George Washington Green had made for him, and considering the details of the problem. Clothes which had been a main obstacle were now accounted for, since, as he had suspected, the packs of Godwin contained a luxurious wardrobe of considerable compass. At that moment, for instance, Donnegan was wrapped in a dressing gown of padded silk, and his feet were encased in slippers. But clothes were the least part of his worries. To startle the corner, and thereby make himself attractive in the eyes of Nellie Lebron, overshadowing Jack Landis, that was the thing. But to startle the corner, where gold strikes were events of every twenty-four hours just now, where robberies were common gossip, and where the killings now averaged nearly three a day, to startle the corner was like trying to startle the theatrical world with a sensational play. Indeed, this parallel could have been pursued, for Donnegan was the nameless actor, and the mountain desert was the stage on which he intended to become a headliner. No wonder, then, that his lean face was compressed in thought. Yet, no one could have guessed it by his conversation. At the moment, he was interrupted. His talk ran somewhat as follows. George, Godwin taught you how to make coffee? 
Yes, sir, from George. Since the night before, he had appeared totally subdued. Never once did he venture a comment, and even Donnegan was conscious of big, bright eyes watching him in a reverent fear not untinged by superstition. Once in the middle of the night he had wakened and seen the vast shadow of George's form leaning over the sack of money. Murder by stealth in the dark had been in the giant's mind, no doubt. But when, after that, he came and leaned over Donnegan's bunk, the master closed his eyes and kept on breathing regularly, and finally George returned to his own place, softly as a gigantic cat. Even in the master's sleep he found something to be dreaded, and Donnegan knew that he could now trust the fellow through anything. In the morning, at the first touch of light, he had gone to the stores and collected provisions, and a comfortable breakfast followed. Godwin, resumed Donnegan, was talented in many ways. The big man showed his teeth in silence, for since Godwin proposed the sacrifice of the servant to preserve himself, George had apparently altered his opinion of the gambler. A talented man, George, but he knew nothing of coffee. It should never boil. It should only begin to cream through the crust. Let that happen. Take the pot from the fire. Put it back and let the surface cream again. Do this three times, and then pour the liquid from the grounds, and you'll have the right strength and the right heating. You understand? Yes, sir. And concerning the frying of bacon. At this point, the interruption came in the shape of four men at the open door. One of these Donnegan recognized as a real estate dealer who had shrewdly set up tents and shacks on every favorable spot in the corner and was now reaping a rich harvest. Gloucester was his name. It was patent that he did not see in the man in the silk dressing robe the unshaven miscreant of the day before who had rented the two tents. Howdy, he said, standing on the threshold with the other three in the background. Donnegan looked at him and through him. My name is Gloucester. I own this shack, and I've come to find out why you're in it. George, said Donnegan, speak to him. Tell him that I know houses are scarce in the corner, that I found this place by accident vacant, that I intend to stay in it on purpose. George Washington Green instantly rose to the situation. He swallowed a vast grin and strode to the door. And though Mr. Gloucester's face crimsoned with rage at such treatment, he controlled his voice. In the corner, manhood was apt to be reckoned by the pound and George was a giant. "'I heard what your boss said, buddy,' said Gloucester, "'but I've rented this cabin and the next one to these three gents and their party, and they want a home. Nothing to do but vacate. Which speed is the thing I want? Thirty minutes, Will?' Thirty minutes don't change nothing,' declared George in his deep, soft voice. The real estate man choked. Then, "'You tell your boss that jumping a cabin is like jumping a claim. There's a law in the corner for gents like him." George made a gesture of helplessness, but Gloucester turned to the three. "'Both shacks are none at all,' said the spokesman. "'One ain't big enough to do us any good. But if this bird won't vamoose—' He was a tolerably rough-appearing sort, and he was backed by two of a kind. No doubt dangerous action would have followed had not George shown himself capable of rising to a height. He stepped from the door. He approached Gloucester and said, 
in a confidential whisper that reached easily to the other three. "'There ain't any call for a quick play, mister. Watch yourself. Maybe you don't know who the boss is.' "'And what more I don't care,' said Gloucester defiantly, but with his voice instinctively lowered. He stared past George, and behold, the man in the dressing gown still sat in quiet and sipped his coffee. "'It's Donnegan,' whispered George. "'Don? Who's he? You don't know Donnegan?' The mingled contempt and astonishment of George would have moved a thing of stone. It certainly troubled Gloucester as he turned to the three. "'Gents,' he said, "'there's two things we can do. Try the law, and the law's a lame lady in these parts, or throw him out. Say which.' The three looked from Gloucester to the shack, from the shack to Donnegan, absently sipping his coffee, from Donnegan to George, who stood exhibiting a broad grin of anticipated delight. The contrast was too much for them. There is one great and deep-seated terror in the mountain desert, and that is for the man who may be other than he seems. The giant with the rough voice and the boisterous ways is generally due for a stormy passage west of the Rockies, but the silent man, with the gentle manners, receives respect. Traditions live of desperados, with exteriors of womanish calm and the actions of devils. Donnegan, sipping his morning coffee, fitted into the picture which rumor had painted. The three looked at one another, declared that they had not come to fight for a house but to rent one, that the real estate agent could go to the devil for all of them, and that they were bound elsewhere. So they departed, and left Gloucester, both relieved and gloomy. "'Now,' said Donnegan to George, "'tell him we'll take both the shacks, and that he can add fifty percent to his old price.' The bargain was concluded on the spot. The money was paid by George. Gloucester went down the hill to tell the corner that a mystery had hit the town, and George brought the canvas bag back to Donnegan with the top still untied, as though to let it be seen that he had not pocketed any of the gold. "'I don't want to count it,' said Donnegan. "'Keep the bag, George. Keep money in your pocket. Treat both of us well, and when that's gone, I'll get more.' If the manner in which Donnegan had handled the renting of the cabins had charmed George, he was wholly entranced by this last touch of free spending. To serve a man who was his master was one thing. To serve one who trusted him so completely was quite another. To live under the same roof with a man who was a riddle was sufficiently delightful, but to be allowed actually to share in the mystery was a super-happiness. He was singing when he started to wash the dishes, and Donnegan went across the hill to the tent of Lou Macon. She was laying the fire before her tent and the morning freshness had cleared from her face any vestige of the trouble of the night before, and in the slant light her hair was glorious, all ruffling gold, semi-transparent. She did not smile at him, but she could give the effect of smiling while her face remained grave. It was her inner calm content, of which people were aware. "'You missed me?' "'Yes.' "'You were worried?' "'No.' He felt himself put quietly at a distance. So he took her up the hill to her new home, the shack beside his own, and George cooked her breakfast. When she had been served, Donnegan drew the big man to one side. "'She's your mistress,' said Donnegan, 
Everything you do for her is worth two things you do for me. Watch her as if she were in your eye, and if a hair on her head is ever harmed, you see that fire burning yonder, the bed of coals? Sir, I'll catch you and make a fire like that and feed you into it by inches. And the pale face of Donnegan became for an instant the face of a demon. George Washington Green saw and never forgot. Afterward, in order that he might think, Donnegan got on one of the horses he had taken from Godwin and rode over the hills. They were both leggy chestnuts with surprising signs of blood and all the earmarks of sprinters. But in Godwin's trade, sharp getaways were probably often necessary. The pleasure he took in the action of the animal kept him from getting into his problem. How to startle the corner, how to follow up the opening gun, which he had fired at the expense of Gloucester and the three miners. He broke off later in the day to write a letter to Colonel Macon, informing him that Jack Landis was tied hard and fast by Nellie Lebron, and that for the present nothing could be done except wait, unless the Colonel had suggestions to offer. The thought of the Colonel, however, stimulated Donnegan, and before mid-afternoon he had thought of a thing to do. End of chapter 16